Chapter 6, Golden Gate Bridge You never think of yourself as naive until later. But I was as green as any hayseed dropped into a large city with real city problems. I'd grown up in the farming communities of sunny central California during a particularly tranquil period. The 1980s were a period of economic prosperity that seemed to bestow rainbows and unicorns on everything. Or at least that's how it seems in my fuzzy childhood memories. I do remember elementary school and our social studies classes where we learned about slavery, racism, and the civil rights movement. It was presented as a fait accompli or a done deal. There were bad people in the past that had slaves. Then there was a war to free those slaves. There were other races back in the 1950s, but in the 60s, it was all fixed after some marches and some singing. This simplified view wasn't challenged or corrected in later studies, and since there was only a token black population in town, there was no obvious evidence to the contrary or at least not obvious to an eight-year-old. As I got older, we moved to an even smaller community in California foothills. We didn't have cable television, traffic lights, or even a gas station open past 9.30 p.m. The lack of diversity seemed to be just a given. There was a black family in our county, and everyone seemed to like them just fine but they live clear across the county, so who knows what they really experienced. My friends and I couldn't even watch music videos or buy a new cassette without leaving the county. So what did we know, or frankly care, about racial disparities? We were too ignorant to even know what we didn't know. I just wanted to get out and see the world, literally. That was the only dream I really had, to travel. So I started that journey by applying to colleges all over the southern United States. I knew I didn't like the cold weather, and I knew I wanted to leave California. Luckily for me, my parents knew better. They were more worldly and well-traveled than most of my friends' parents, so, instead of the current tradition of smothering your child or following them to college, they encouraged me to explore. When the acceptance letter came from Memphis State University, we packed up for a parents' weekend in July and headed east. While I was settling into the massive 10-story dormitory and encountering varying degrees of culture shock, Hunter was across town on Sudden Place fighting with his mother again. Once she had opened the faucet of vinegar and resentment, that tap never turned off again. Within a few months, Belle had married again, secretly. While she married him locally, he never moved into the new house with Belle and her son. He remained at his home in Alabama. He owned a small bra company. Few people even knew that Belle had married for a fifth time. Of course, Hunter knew. Hunter knew because she threw it in his face almost every day. 
and she reminded him that since he wasn't blood kin, she could just as easily pick up and move to Alabama anytime. She could take all her money and leave him there, unwanted, and she would unless he could demonstrate his devotion and loyalty. They fell into an endless cycle of brutal screaming matches, followed by periods of calm but ardent declarations of love, devotion, and fidelity. It was like a marriage made in hell, but as long as Bear remained appeased, Hunter could continue to live at home and she could continue to financially support him. After a time, her fifth husband wasn't her fifth husband anymore, but even fewer people knew when she divorced. My family was entirely non-religious when I was growing up. My maternal grandmother was Jewish, but other than lighting candles for a few years in a row, we were less religious than most communists in China, as the saying goes. Of course, that translated into huge point of curiosity for me. Growing up, I tag along the services at the Methodist, Mormon, and other churches of my friends. It seemed so important to them, so I wondered why religion wasn't important to me. I had no personal connections to any of those religions. Judaism, well, that was actually in my family. So, when I arrived in Memphis and discovered that there was a sizable community, I decided to check into it. I never lived anywhere where I actually knew other Jewish people that weren't related. I'd certainly never lived anywhere that was large enough to have a synagogue. It was a crazy concept to me, and I'd expected to be welcomed into the tribe, as it were. In that way, I could understand how Hunter saw his faith as a membership card. But my experience was very different, and in many ways, after a brief incursion, made me very reluctant to reach out again. While I was initially welcomed into the building at least, the welcome didn't last. Very quickly, I was essentially ostracized for not being Jewish enough. It was hurtful, but not nearly as much as it would have been had it been something I was passionate about. As it was, I had other friends, and I had recently joined a sorority devoted to community service. I didn't need to be part of the Jewish Student Union, so while the rejection stung, I carried on. Prior to my expulsion, I met several members of the JSU in the game room of the building. They were playing pool and making bets. One of them was Hunter, and the other was a man named Charles, who went by Chuck. As appalling as it is to admit, as enamored as I was of him all those years ago, his last name now escapes me. In contrast to Hunter and his running commentary during the Billards game, Chuck was sitting on the couch quietly with the book in his lap. He invited me to sit down and explained that he was there on a short study break. He was kind, smart, and good-looking in an intellectual type of way, despite the beginning of a receding hairline. We talked for about 10 minutes before he looked at his watch and said he needed to return to studying. 
He asked if I would walk with him to the law library, and so I did. I had started taking some evening classes in paralegal studies this semester, so I was intrigued. I had gone through quite a few majors in just a few short months and couldn't seem to find anything that fit. I found a flyer for an evening program, and while I wasn't interested in being a paralegal, it seemed like a good way to see if the legal field appealed to me. I couldn't fathom waiting until getting into law school only to figure out that it might not suit. We talked about that as we walked slowly across campus as he explained his love of the law. We spoke for a few minutes after arriving at the law library. I couldn't tell if he was interested in me or was just a genuinely nice person, but I was charmed by him all the same. As I left the law library, intending to head back to the tower dormitory, I was intercepted by Hunter who just happened to be there. I was amused and flattered by this, but still not very impressed by his endless self-aggrandizing. He asked if he could walk me to the dorm, and there didn't seem a gracious way to say no, so he did. As we walked towards the dorm, we ran into my two closest friends, my roommate Libby and my friend Melissa. I gave them a bit of an eye roll when he insisted on continuing to escort us back. He must have sensed my disinterest because as we approached the building, he mentioned that he could get us backstage tickets to see B.B. King. I wasn't cultured or educated enough to know anything about blues music. But the three of us girls were intrigued about being backstage and underage at one of the most famous clubs in Memphis. So we ended up going, along with Hunter and two of his friends. When I think back to the time, the memory is pretty hazy. My biggest regret is not knowing enough to appreciate watching a live performance of B.B. King, who was in his late 60s back then. We had another couple such dates once Melissa and I traveled to Little Rock with Hunter and his friend for a football game. I didn't like sports, but Hunter had to make a pit stop at Buster's Liquors before we left Memphis, so I happily sipped on the same bottle of Zima for the whole ride. It was nothing serious for either of us, and it just seemed like good fun. I still visited Chuck at the law library on occasion, and he remained as sweet, funny, and charming as ever. He seemed to be flirting with me at times, but whether it was his innate shyness or my lack of pedigree, he never got around to asking me out. After two or three more visits at his behest, with nothing more than small talk, I stopped going. A girl needs some encouragement, after all. Since Chuck seemed content to stay in the law library, I agreed to go out with Hunter. He was attractive, if egotistical, but he seemed to know how to make up for it with witty conversation. He also seemed to make a genuine attempt to connect with me on an intellectual level. I know now that that's part of the sociopath playbook, but at the time, I was charmed by his efforts. 
I had never been verbally assaulted in such a gentle fashion. Then again, I had never really been verbally assaulted before either. Californians may not have the reputation of gracious hospitality, but Californians were not brutes either. The average person was open, friendly, and considerate. Miss Barron was most decidedly not. I had been on a few casual dates with Hunter, but now he invited me to dinner at his mother's home. The initial salvo began after the introduction with her saying, Why, I don't think I know your people. They must not be much in her soft southern drawl. It didn't seem to occur to her that as a native Californian, the expectation that she might know my people was a little ridiculous. But I was young, naive, and taught to be respectful to my elders, so I was completely defenseless. I was also taken aback. The idea of sarcastic reply was beyond me. Of course, if I had, I might have pointed out that my father ran a Fortune 500 company and had been featured in the magazine of the same name. So how's that for my people? But honestly, I've never been able to immediately answer rudeness with rudeness. So snappy comebacks still escape me to this day. I was also much less versed in literature back then, or I would have laughed out loud at good old Blanche Dubois holding court in regal fashion with all of her pretensions. There was not one, but two painted portraits of her visible as you entered the house, one at the foot of the stairs and the other hanging over the mantel of the fireplace in the dining room. She was dressed as lady to the manor born and the long, long dining table would have easily seated 12. The table was set with three formal place settings at one end and another lonely setting at the far end. That sad, lonely, distant setting was to be my Siberia for the long, painful meal that followed. She, Hunter, and husband, number six, of whom I don't think any of us can recall, sat at one end. She would volley comments and questions in my direction, and in my earnestness, I tried to answer them directly. Of course, for some things, there is no answer. She's not as pretty as the other one, was one of those grenades. That Kristen, now she's not Jewish either, but I like her better, was another. I could only sit in silent mortification and try to choke down a meal of salmon croquets, followed by a small sliver of veal and wish myself invisible. I didn't have the confidence I do today where I would have called myself a taxi and walked out. Of course, today, I could do that with an app on my phone without saying a word. Hunter didn't seem to notice the awkwardness or more likely just ignored it since it didn't directly affect him. Husband number six, Jerry, I think, only spoke at irregular intervals and with her permission, it seemed. He looked at me with compassion in his eyes, and I seemed to sense that I was witnessing a larger pathology at work. 
Long, long after I wanted to leave, Hunter arose from the table. Belle suggested a game of mahjong. I was incredulous, and so I finally found my voice to insist that I needed to return to the dorm. Oh my, how discourteous, Belle said, seemingly appalled that I no longer wished to subject myself to her abuse. I was silent in the car on the ride home, yet incredulous when Hunter told me just as we arrived back on campus that he couldn't see me anymore since I wasn't Jewish. I wanted to strike him for his gall in thinking I'd ever want to see him again. But even then, as naive as I was, I realized that for someone like Hunter, ending our relationship would have to be his idea. I should have remembered that. It would have saved me a lot of pain later. As it was, I threw myself into my sorority. I come from a family of boys, so I never had the closeness of sisters. Now I had too many sisters to count, and I was the little sister to them all. We performed community service and organized social events. I spent a lot of weekends at the Crystal Palace learning to roller skate, practicing for step shows, and socializing with my sisters. By my sophomore year, I was finally discovering what would become my passion. It wasn't the law, though I like writing about crime and punishment, among other things, it was journalism. With that in mind, I began applying to other schools. I didn't bother to apply to Memphis State because I wasn't quite ready to face a guidance counselor or someone else pointing out that I didn't have the best record in regard to grammar or syntax. My roommate was an English major, and while she talked about things like gerunds, I just wanted to write. When I was accepted to school in Toronto, I gladly went. It fulfilled both of my goals, travel and journalism. It was one step closer to being like my newly anointed hero, Ernest Hemingway. I closed the door on Memphis when my dad picked me up to drive me north to school. I didn't open that door again for two decades. This episode was narrated by Zipporah Gray of RMP Studios in Memphis, Tennessee.